Our next guest is the founder of the National Institute for Play, who has an interesting background in researching homicidal, violent and antisocial behaviour that linked to play deprivation in childhood. He is a published author who speaks, consults and educates organisations, corporations, universities and public policymakers about the importance of play in our lives and the unexpected serious consequences of neglecting play. Today we're talking about play deprivation, increased mental health challenges and the major changes in generational play. A big warm welcome to the Worthy Studio, a hero of all playmakers throughout the world, Dr. Stuart Brown. How would you define play? Very difficult to define it because <laughs> it's a little bit like trying to talk about love or uh, if you know the uh, vocabulary, if you can tell me how paint smells uh, and, and according to uh, good, you know, it's acrid or it's this or it's that, you don't really get the essence of what love is or what how paint smells in, in words. And that's because uh, play was established before language and words. It's been around a few hundred million years and it is difficult to define, but most people need to have a definition. So I would say yeah. play is something we do voluntarily. It engages us. It's fun. Uh, we do it for its own sake. We don't do it necessarily for outcome. It takes us yeah. out of a sense of our time. Uh, it, it is uh, uplifting to the mood, to one's mood. Uh, if you go without it, you're not as good a person or as happy or as competent a human being. And on and on. I could go on and on with more definitions, but I think... Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we all see it and know it when we see it and tend to know it when mm. we experience it. So it's it's not yeah. a big enigma in that way. Yeah, it's that transcendence of the giving the opportunity for the brain to realize what our heart knows to be true. Yes, well said. A, um, a, a point that really helped me understand and that I've stuck with and the way I assess play as a um, playground designer and builder is that a quote of yours was, I'm going to ruin it, but it's, um, when, when the outcome's more important than the process, it's not play. I like that. <laughs> and, and, and another one is that the, um, our hands are looking for our brain and our brain are looking for our hands. I like that too. That's uh, Frank Wilson, who's wrote, written a book called The Hand, has taught me a lot. He's a neurologist, retired neurologist from Stanford. But the hand-brain coevolution and how much we use it, you know, I'm gesturing with my hands now and how yeah. much little kids build things with their hands and, and that fosters uh, lots of good, good stuff that goes on in the brain. Yeah, and talking about that good stuff, let's let's try to um, describe the smell of paint together um, and delve into what, what's happening internally within our brains from your research when we're engaging in that fulfilling play where it's about the process and not the outcome. Well, it, you know, we don't really know if you can find and tell me what a thought is with brain imaging 
uh, you'll get the Nobel Prize uh, before the end of this broadcast. But uh, <laughs> so so there's a lot that's enigmatic about brain function. But one of our advisors and a, a pioneer who passed away a couple of years ago, Jacques Panksepp, found that uh, in playful mammals, the circuitry that motivates play is subcortical. That is, it's in the ancient survival centers of the brain, along with breathing and sleep and dreams and immune process and things like that. And that if you take the cortex and remove it surgically from a, a infant rat, for example, they will survive. And one would think they'd be sort of vegetative, but lo and behold, at weeks four to 15, when they normally engage in rough and tumble play, you can't tell the decorticated rats from the normal ones. So that the circuits that drive play behavior itself are deeply embedded in survival centers of the brain. And all social mammals, and probably playful birds, have that same neuroanatomy, which was a, a great surprise to me in the course of my studying play. I thought it was all learned and, and was culturally mm. crafted, which of course it, it has, it's shaped by culture and by learning, but the motivation and the triggering of play itself is is a very deep process so when uh for mm -hmm. example it, researchers who study animal play observe rough and tumble play which happens across the board and is particularly obvious in rats when rats rough and tumble play they turn on probably a, a 1200 prefrontal cortical genes which cause increased connections in the brain. So play, it, it, we know from animal studies and uh, assume that sim similar things happen to humans, that play is good for the brain. Yeah, and I like what you said there about that survival aspect, and it makes me flip to the other side and, and look at the ch um, childhood experience at the moment and the old nature of like, oh, keep your hands to yourself. No, that's their space. Give these children the abstract ideas. And we're trying to, it seems like we're trying to give children that abstract concepts to learn about the sensory world, which is like voiding that connection between the hands and the brain, well, setting them up for failure. It engages kids intrinsically from their own innate curiosity is driven in large part when kids are young by their play nature. So that if you mm. overscript them or if you uh, uh, give them a task that doesn't necessarily fit what they love, but which the adult may love, uh, you're in the way of some of their learning and their innate curiosity. And to some degree, you, uh, you affect uh, probably the richness that otherwise would accrue from naturally engaged play. Absolutely. And from someone that studied play, and I know you've made reference in some of your talks and books to play in the 15th century, um, what, what's the, what's the major, sorry, I'll start again. What's the, um, what do you see in the types of play that are happening at the moment or lack of play that's happening in the moment, which is the outlier of the 
compared to how we've played over time? You know, it, that's a really tough question because there's, there's no singular. You know, there are some kids who are playing mm. plenty and and a whole lot of kids who aren't, who are uh, sedentary, obese, depressed, and not playing. So I think the, mm. the freedom to play in, uh, let's say, late preschool, early elementary school, where it's not scripted by an adult, where the kids are in a group with each other, where they work together and play together and problem solve together, that that uh, as a norm has, at least in middle-class America, has essentially ceased to exist, partly because mm. their perception is that kids on the street are endangered from all kinds of mayhem, and because a lot of parents, you know, loving parents feel that their time of their kids ought to be well organized with gymnastics or ballerina or soccer or, you know, learning Mandarin when you're age eight and uh, that kind of thing. So they interrupt the natural play drive, which in, you know, in some of the educators that I know about say, uh, wait a minute, play equals learning. So the, the very essence of learning, mm. in, particularly in childhood, requires the free, open play experiences. That, and with that, some of the travail that inevitably occurs when uh, kids mix it up in rough and tumble play. Yeah. And, and if, if this um, trend continues to increase and we put that focus on the extracurricular and the academics, etc., the doing, not the being, if you will, um, what do you see the impact being on our younger generation of children? I think it's uh, my concern is empathy itself, the ability to have some sense of what's going on in the other person, what produces anguish or discomfort mm. emotionally or physically in them, is learned spontaneously in early play. And if you don't get that, the chances are you're going to be less empathic and be uh, a less uh, warm-hearted communal person who who gives of themselves to others, which is part of how we human beings have survived over time uh, as tribal and national people. So it's it has, play deprivation has, I think, some huge uh, outcomes that are negative. Yeah, 100%. And a uh, quote that I looked up in researching, chatting to you and delving deeper into your work. It's very simple, but it sums it up. What's the opposite of depression? Play. Yes, it's not work. You know, the opposite of play is not yeah, necessarily absolutely. work either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, with the, with the current culture of putting yourself on show and it's all about you, it really highlights how the, the lack of play is really playing into this trend of being self-indulgent and um, only worrying about yourself and your image and not giving to others. And I love how that um, you use those words around empathy and, uh, and also joy. I think joy is a word that's vastly overlooked because it doesn't, it's, 
it's it's very simple, but joy is the base of could be considered one of the key ingredients of play. I think you're right on. Jacques Ponsep, the, the researcher I mentioned earlier, uh, struggled with defining the circuitry and called it, would capitalize it and say P-L-A-Y. But in private discussions with him, he'd say mammals are wired for social joy. And when, and mm. I've been over the years have thought about uh, people who miss the social joy and are are left out of the play experiences over time. And if, in addition, they've been subjected to violence or to other issues, then their ability to, uh, and that lack of social joy is, uh, means that they're really toxic to other human beings because they they don't perceive the worthwhileness of being alive. You know, they're basically fundamentally isolated from the human stream, which involves some experiences of joy, even if you're in very difficult circumstances. Yeah, and I'd like to take a moment to also highlight to our listeners that when we're talking about play, it's not a default of talking about children. And for the listeners that want to learn more, um, I'll put a link up to the National Institute of Play website because there's a lot of great articles on the importance of play as adults that is very easily overlooked. That's the National Institute for Play, not of, but... (laughs) For play. I think you're right. Uh, We've had a, a... a board member who used to be involved with knowledge integration at Stanford in the library system, and he has helped us uh, put together, I think, some 700 uh, articles and 120 books, which will mean that the person who's searching to understand play better can, if they are so inclined, can find uh, some linkages that will be very helpful. Absolutely. and. I'd like to take a moment to, um, because it's a quote that I've always, I've used a lot of, and it really, um, I used it as that that shock opportunity. And I'll I'll read what I'm referencing here from um, your pilot study. It says, a lifelong lack of play deprived him of the opportunity to view life with optimism, test alternatives, and learn social skills as a part of spontaneous play, preparing the individual to cope with life stress. If he had experienced regular moments of spontaneous play during his life, they believe he would have developed the skills, flexibility and strength to cope with stressful situations without violence. Gee, that's good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So someone pretty wise wrote that. I'll put a reference to the paper in there so our listeners can can have a browse over that as well. But I'd, I'd read that. And, and not have the context of it was the pilot study for young murderers. But then on the next slide, I'd say, well, that's a pilot study for young murderers, which everyone goes, oh, OK, this is pretty serious business. How, what are your tips to our listeners? Because we need to take play seriously, but we still need to remain playful. That's a it's a dilemma, but it's a really it's really important. 
one of the, you know, you asked me to define plays, play, and one of the problems is if you get into a big analysis of plays like analyzing a joke, you ruin it. Uh, you've got to have uh, <laughs> the experience itself of playfulness. And, and mm. play is an experience. Yep. It's not just uh, a cognitive uh, living up to a definition. It, it's something that is within you and within all human beings as a part of our human nature. And when we don't exercise yep. it, when we don't experience it, when we're communally isolated, we're in in deep yogurt. We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we're talking about one, uh, if we're looking at the spectrum of, of play standard or play value to an individual, we've got um, deprivation of play at one end where it's very severe. But as we move along that continuum, we've also have um, play bias sure. as well. So I understand that you've, you're, fam you're familiar and there's reference to play bias in here as well. Uh, you know, I... so how, go ahead. yeah, go. Oh, I was just going to say, like, can you unpack that for us, uh, the difference between well, play I, bias I, I think and that, um, for our If I were to look at a lifetime, you know, let's say we take a little boy and he's six months old and he's lying on a, on a uh, blanket. His mother's looking at him. He's well fed. He's safe. And he has gleefulness at certain preferences, even at that age. Does he like objects? Does he like socialization? Does he like to be tickled? Does he like to look at stuff? Um, you know, these are all innate preferences. And if you then follow those preferences and his parents are not so programmed that they have to get him into Harvard Law School, you know, <laughs> or the best university in Australia, which you can tell me what it is, you know, if they're not, yeah, Harvard they're Law not School well. so programmed, <laughs> but they are following yeah. their own deep, engaging gleefulness and and gradually establish uh, their own biases about play, what they enjoy, that's an ideal. Now, you take uh, people who are, you know, one of eight impoverished kids uh, with an, an alcoholic father and a schizophrenic mother, and, and you've got horror, you know, you've got no, uh, no play, and you've got the consequences of that kind of uh, very tragic uh, set of circumstances. And we've all have yeah. encountered people who have been raised under circumstances like that. And, you know, it's not just play deprivation, but it's deprivation overall that uh, colors yeah. their outlook for life. So the biases, you know, Brian Sutton Smith, who was originally from New Zealand, wrote be beautifully and felt that you know, a lot of the attitudes about play were really set by upper middle class wealthy people who had time to go out and play soccer and polo and that sort of thing. And he has a point. Mm. Yeah. Is the, is the basis of um, deprivation of play a equity problem? 
You know, when I made a, uh, a three-part series in, in 2000 for public television called The Promise of Play, and one of the things we insisted on was that we would really uh, interview uh, people who were in dire circumstances. And we, ha we uh, featured a woman, it didn't end up in the, it ended up on the cutting room floor, but it was part of our series, who would ride the subway in New York and take her kid to preschool. And she was a single mother, but in the subway, they played the whole time. And on the way home, they played the whole time. That kid had a very rich, uh, would have called a impoverished, lousy background, but you know, it was a good life for that kid because the mother was full of play and full of warmth and, and good cheer and who coped with some very difficult circumstances. So yes, there are, uh, there are people who grind it out in, in difficulty and they're depressed and they don't have much play and that's tragic. But there are uh, Brazilian garbage collectors who uh, have a lousy job, don't make much money, but who drum on their garbage cans between pickups like you wouldn't, wouldn't believe and have a hell of a good time in their mm. work. Yeah. So maybe it's a switch of lenses there that um, plays an opportunity to transcend circumstance. It's necessary to transcend um, circumstance, in my view. The human condition has been tough for a few thousand years or longer. And uh, hunter-gatherers, if you're Peter Gray and you study them, he's a scholar who studies them, uh, mm -hmm. you really get a sense that, that they incorporated play into some very difficult lives. And this helped their survival and helped to keep the community together. Yeah. And it's cre creating a somewhat safe, safe arena for that exploration and training of life. Um, the, the word that popped up again, it just or stands out so vividly for me is like that it's, a, it, it's coming back to joy once again. And it's that joy that that parent had for their child as they went through the subway. And um, it really moves through that. Do you think a um, deprivation of play and um, play bias, um, which is essentially created by a parent, is a form of neglect, a passive neglect? I think it's more than that. I think it's abuse. I think if a parent not play with a child, that that constitutes child abuse, because the essence of childhood is surrounded by the play impulse. And if that's thwarted, I mean, to mm -hmm. me, that's, that's like, uh, at some level, like sleep deprivation, or starvation, it is abuse. It's not as obvious, and our culture is not, yeah, is not honored as such, but the outcome is of really severe play deprivation is serious. Yeah. And there's plenty of studies like this has been going on for a long time. These studies into play deprivation, especially like in war zones. And um, there's a lot of data that's come out there. Was it Croatian Bosnian sure. conflict of children in orphanages with complete play deprivation? 
Um, it brings me to another quote. A lack of play should be treated like malnutrition. It's a health risk to the body and the Well put. There we go. Yeah, well, well, well put I, by I, you. I, I just read your quote. I'm not so. the only one who says that. <laughs> most, most people that take a no, look at play, no, absolutely. We have, a, we have a, a bond with each other that's quite, quite uh, similar, where there's not a lot of controversy. Yeah, and um, let's switch gears a bit and start to look at. Um, we've we've taken a good snapshot of like trying to understand play and things like that. So, how do we support and and advocate? You've done such a great job advocating and being at the front of um, encouraging people to support play. What's your tips for people that want to activate play in their communities? Or no, let's not even look at communities. As a parent, your family, how how do you, what's your tips? That's a really, really good question. And a lot of my life has been spent advocating play in the last 30 or 40 years. And because there's such a uh, false uh, cultural norm that play is superficial and that the the nose to the grindstone and the, the lawyer who works all night uh, preparing his brief is going to be a better lawyer mm. than the guy who who uh, goes to the sports bar and then goes to sleep. Uh, well, that's that's not correct. I think the data and part of the reason that uh, the National Institute for Play is focused on play science is to provide the a broad range of credibility that says, hey, play and learning go together. Play and competency go together. Play and innovation go together. Play and resiliency go together, and on and on. You know, we can, I could go through a whole list. And that needs mm. to per- perforate the consciousness and the feeling state. And to my way of thinking, uh, every preschool teacher, for example, should allow and offer uh, more free play and more structured play to, the, to their kids. And every parent should recognize that the talent pool that is within their kid is most often evident in the play preferences that that child has. But how to get that into, you know, when, when mm-hmm. we've had a, uh, you know, a depression, a industrialized culture where outcome is worshiped, a materialistic culture where earning is tremendously important, it's an uphill fight. But I think the data is so, uh, non-controversial, controvertible that, uh, you know, I'm hoping that some of the stuff that that uh, I've learned and that the other play uh, experts have learned beyond what particularly the play researchers have, have established will get into public policy, education, parenting, uh, and, you know, places like the U.S. Congress, which could use uh, a little nocturnal play amongst the uh, the Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> Solve problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, what, what major changes have you seen in the uptake of play over the over the years that well, you've been studying and contributing to the play realm? By what I see going on in a, in, in a lot of 
innovative industry, for example, they do not uh, recognize that the best innovative researcher arrives first in the morning in the parking lot and leaves last at night, tired and, and worn down, but, you know, wonderful hard worker. It is the innovative uh, researcher who has kept play in his or her life and and incorporates that into new ideas and, and new adaptable changes that provide industry and commerce and government with the flexibility to face a changing world, which is partly why play has persisted. It's how we get along in a world that uh, throws us a lot of curves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was fortunate enough to just come back, well, in May now, from the Children and Nature Network conference and, and seeing the lobbying and petitioning from like greening schoolyards right across America to um, Congress people crossing the floor to really petition more green space, wonderful. more play space. So it's it's really, really wonderful to see in such a amount of time people see the impact it's having. And I think COVID's created a great opportunity for play, especially when you're putting the lens of well-being um, within play. And it's the, the medicine, if you will, or the prescription to offset um, but so many of those things you mentioned, like despair mm -hmm. and depression. No, I think there's a, I think there's an upswing um, in recognition of play, certainly among academics and, and I would say those who are looking for outcome in innovative industries. Uh, I think that nonetheless, there are uh, resistances against uh, free play and, and at least in the US, who gets the lowest amount of money practically of anybody, it is preschool teachers. And, and you know, what they're doing is hugely important yeah. for the future of, the, of our species. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it frightens me like to touch on your point earlier about making sure a child gets into Harvard. It's like parents complaining to their like prep teacher that they're not doing the right things to get into Harvard in prep. It is it's absolutely wild. Well, we, you know, I, I could give you a story after story of presenting uh, uh, play to uh, upper, mobily upward, uh, often immigrant families who don't want their kids to be involved in mm. frivolous activities because they want them to make a good living and they're anti-play. And it, it, it's always fun to show yep. them that uh, maybe there's a better way. <laughs> yeah, I had an experience I'll share with you briefly. Um, went to work with a early childhood center because I go and teach about play and support the educators to look at more a little bit broadly than setting up a frame and a balancing beam and that's play or having a slide and a sandpit that's play. Um, but working with a uh, center with a high refugee um, percentage of children and the um, a group of the parents got together and said, well, they don't want the girls playing because if they get hurt, 
um, or get any scars on their body. It could really affect their success in finding a husband. So um, that was quite a big challenge to overcome. Well, one of the things about play is if it's active in preschool, uh, there's a certain amount of risk-taking that's not lethal and not terribly scary that's learned. And so yeah. the, the kid who plays a lot is, mm. tends to be safer overall, even though they've had some bumps along the way, than the kid who suddenly comes into a playground and doesn't realize that climbing up a slide, you can fall off and get and break this and that and the other thing. But if they've spent a lot of time learning to climb Absolutely. the steps of the slide, they take the risks in, in, in hand, basically. Yeah, and that, that was the approach I took with the families, was teaching about the, the, mm-hmm. uh, the risk hazard analysis. It was like, we, we need to look at this as risk and hazard and how it actually empowers them to keep themselves safe moving forward and problem solve, et cetera. And then once it was reframed, it was actually turned it around, um, which was good for the children in the end. I'll, I'll read another quote here that I like. Play allows us to develop alternatives to violence and despair. It helps us learn perseverance and gain optimism. And I love that word of optimism because you can get caught in the doom and gloom and um, especially someone that's well-versed in studying murderers. um, How do you stay optimistic? Again, the experience. Uh, When I, if if I've Mm -hmm. had a kind of a downtime or if if there's been a loss of a family member from disease or some, some other tragedy, and you're trying to break the cycle of grief or uh, depression, the experience of dancing, for example, uh, tends to lighten that experience. And prioritizing play in your own life, what works for you, tends to break the cycle that leads one to say, okay, how can I master what's going on in life? How can I have more optimism? And the human spirit requires some, mm. you know, we're all faced with a mortal uh, trajectory. That, that's uh, pretty grim. You know, you're, bo- you're born, you're, mm. you grow up, and then you croak. Well, yeah. that's not e- the easiest uh, cycle that I know of, but it's, what, it's our cycle. How do you stay optimistic? Well, part of the reason you can mm. is through mutual joy, through play, uh, the... the uh, social joy that the school shooters seem to have missed and are willing to sacrifice their own lives and lives of others. Uh, these are people who mm. have, not, have had major lack of social joy and social play. Mm. Is it because they've lacked to turn on the switches to um, have self-fulfillment and be a master of their own accomplishment and joy? So they project that negative association out I, into I don't the world know that and treat a, it with I don't know that there's any singular violence. pattern, but I think the murders that I've studied, mm. uh, it's there's a kind of a murder-suicide uh, pact within them. 
and it may not be fully conscious, but right. it's close. And there is a feeling of isolation, of powerlessness, and then the ability to, with either yes. firearms or some other uh, uh, spectacular kind of, of antisocial act, they they gain some of the power and the and the uh, what they never have had in their life. And to me, these are people when you look at their life trajectory, almost all of them were quite identifiable in preschool as isolated and depressed and difficult. Mm. So, or having family circumstances that were so toxic that child protective or other circumstances would intervene and, and uh, lessen that trauma. Yeah, was, is there a trend of like traumatic moments um, for the murderers you studied or was it a uh, cumulative I'd life say of trauma? Would, the, there's no generalization that works for different people. Uh, but the ones, the one I studied mm. the most intensely, of course, was the Texas Tower. The others did not, where we did autopsies and, and family genetic studies and and a detailed historical review of the life from prenatal all the way up to the moment of the tower. So I haven't seen that level of detail in some of the other studies, but what they do show in, in general is uh, the taboos of violence against which most of us have horror. If, if we see a little kid being hurt in a supermarket or something mm. like that, you want to intervene, you, you, you know, it, it's going to make you uncomfortable. Well, a lot of the, the murderers and the drunken drivers that were felony drunken drivers that I studied, uh, that uh, desensitization to violence happened over and over and over again so that the taboos of violence itself were not as, as uh, legislated or as a part of their conscience structure. So that plus the absence of play, mm. plus the presence of weaponry is, uh, is a yeah. toxic combination. Yeah, so it's this cumulative impact, 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 and, and no um, joy, joyous behavior to offset that. So it's creating that bigger divide each time and to offset and support our children. It's about exposing them to those joyous moments of play and fulfillment to foster that resilience and um, perseverance, which then will right. result in optimism. I think, well, you know, if it, I'm getting that it, right. It, <laughs> I think, you know, I think you don't need me. You've got a lot of this stuff down. <laughs> You're, I, I enjoy the, uh, no, the not, reverberation not of, of, of good of good play stuff coming from you. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think thank you. Um, and it's it's just um, yeah, it's just so fantastic to to chat about this. I could go on for hours and hours. Um, what I would like to there's a, there's another word that. Um, 
well, your your friend and someone I aspire to be a friend with one day is um, Jane Goodall and looking at from that play play um, lens. But yes. then that word hope. And I think like when we talk optimism and perseverance, we equally have to reference hope in this conversation. So how does play well, give you hope? Well, it out to be part of uh, what is an essential part of being human. Uh, you know, the example I get is, uh, you know, I was in a pharmacy line the other day, you know, old guy getting a lot of pills for hypertension and whatever else. And it was a slow moving line and people were grumbling. And, uh, and, and I said something to the effect of, well, is this the longest pharmacy line you've ever been in? Uh, how about you? You ever been in one longer than this? And pretty soon we all started talking about, and, and by George, we didn't mind waiting in line. So I think there's something about just the play yeah. ethic itself that allows you, I mean, that's a very minor kind of irritation to deal with, but I think it's there, play is there to uh, enable us to deal with the differences in human, with the things that make us irritable, with uh, putting down uh, the young adolescent who thinks he's king of the hill, and and uh, you know normalizing uh, our ability to form a community is part of what play allows. And when play is missed communally, or when we don't have to your word and, and mine too, we don't have social joy. I think uh, we look at each other differently. I see the people in that line now completely mm. differently than I did before. You know, it, it's like I could be friends with all of them. And when I walked yeah. up there, I thought, oh man, how long is this going to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just highlights the importance of that um, social connection, doesn't it? And it's and play seems the the vessel to make it safe and right. accessible. And it and and it plays into that other what you said earlier about it being about the process, not the outcome. That interaction is not about making the line go faster. No. It's not about getting it to the front. It was about okay. And what, what cues can we prompt to make this an experience? It's fantastic. I love it. I love it so much. Um, what have I got here? I think, we're, I think we've hit a lot of it. What is, what, what, what excites you in like, you've, you've been on this big long path, the career in play, um, I think we need a whole nother podcast to talk about like those personas and archetypes, if you will, about those play styles from people like, who was it like Steve Jobs is a play type to Jerry Seinfeld right. is a joker. We'll, we'll go into that next time. Cause I think sure. that's a solid hour trying to understand that. Um, but what most excites you about what's coming you up know, in the I, world I of play? Think the ability to, uh, be frivolous for one thing, uh, and nonsense is mm -hmm. part of our play nature. And you know, if you're an adult and you're kind of acting 
like you're <laughs> nonsensical, uh, you, you tend to be shunted off to the side and, and somebody's about ready to commit you to something. And yet that's, that's an important part of lightening up the world and being, uh, so that's just what a thought that comes to me. Uh, you know, and I think uh, when I, I live in a, an area that's close to the Pacific Ocean and there's a lovely beach about 10 miles east of where I live, and when I go to that beach, uh, I can be in any kind of mood, but about uh, 200 yards down the beach, if there are a couple of kids digging in the sand, or a couple embracing, or dogs chasing seagulls, I'm, I'm a different person because it's like this is a playground. And if we establish uh, a playground mm -hmm. for ourselves, as much as possible, whether you're in a d urban area or out in the country somewhere. Uh, I think uh, seeing the world as offering you a playground rather than a battleground or proving ground, if that's possible, it's uh, good for you to find a playground for yourself every day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Play It Forward with Dr. Stuart Brown. I hope that this episode was inspiring to you as it was to me. If you like this episode, please subscribe or follow Play It Forward, a worthy podcast.